0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. In Psalm 19, David writes these words, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Let's pray together. Truly, O God, the heavens do declare your glory. From the earliest moments of the morning when you bring the sun up and it rises into the sky and its heat warms the earth, we're reminded of your daily faithfulness. And your daily provision for all of your creation. You've made everything. And you sustain everything. You've given heat to the earth. You've given the sun and the moon in their courses to move each and every day exactly as you've planned. And you've breathed breath into our very beings. And we wake up and we live each and every day underneath your sovereign care. And everywhere we look around us, we see... Examples we see evidence of your glory and of your splendor and of your power And you're a god who's created everything who's breathed life into every living creature And yet you care about us You've called us to gather in moments just like this to sing and to pray and to worship you Because you delight in the praise of your people And it's in these moments that you come and you meet with us and you encounter us and you speak to us and you teach us, challenge us, you encourage us. And you do that through your precious Word, which David so beautifully describes in our text this morning. A Word that's a perfect law. A Word that's right. A Word that's pure. A Word that's clean. It's more precious than gold treasure indeed we have the very words that come from you and as we read them and as we study them the morning this morning it's it's you who's speaking to us and there's so much value in what we've done and what we continue to do this morning as we encounter your word Lord you you bring joy to our hearts you you enlighten and open our eyes to see truth in a world filled with lies you make simple people like us wise. You revive our very souls. And we've come, Lord, because we expect You to do those things in our midst this morning. We believe that You'll do so. We believe it's, in fact, Your very will to do that in us today. And so we come with expectant hearts. Lord, we come carrying needs and carrying concerns in each of our lives and each of our families needs and concerns perhaps that only you know about, but you know us to the depths of our beings. You know the needs of every man and every woman and every family represented in this place. And so, God, we pray in these quiet moments that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would meet us at the very place where we need to see you most desperately this morning. That you would bring into our lives the very ministry that we need. That we might walk from this place with joy in our hearts, knowing that we've encountered the one true living God. Lord, as David cries out in the psalm, we cry out too, Lord, that You would, that you would keep us from presumptuous sins, sins that would continue to, to track with our lives and, and some days dominate us. Lord, give us victory this morning. Give us freedom from our sin. Forgive us where we failed You this week. Wash us and make us clean in Your very presence this morning. We cry out with David this morning. We cry out to You that You might cause the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart to be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight this morning as we worship You. For You are our God, our Rock, and our Redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When you get my age,
1: sometimes you forget about things you want to say earlier in the service. There's a reason we sang, My Jesus, I Love Thee, uh, at the end of that set. Because we sang, um, prior to that, a song about suffering a song about God's faithfulness. That blessed be your name is inspired from the book of Job. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where streams of abundance flow. But then, blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, when I walk through the wilderness. And uses the words from Job, You give and take away. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That relates to all of 1 Peter. The suffering of Job and the suffering of God's people. And uh, I wanted you to make that connection because it connects um, specifically To today's text. And so turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We also, when you get my age, you want to sit down sometimes. I'll quickly give you an uh, outline of the entire chapter. It's not piecemeal, there are connections here. I'll try to make some of those connections today. But in verses 1 through 7, for the most part, we have some exhortation from. From from Peter uh, dealing with the um, sheep and the shepherds. So first with the shepherds, the elders. If you could put that outline up there, um, that would help. You have exhortation, and then secondly, you've got dealing with the shepherds and the sheep, um, the the elders and and uh, young people and All of you, then he says, humble yourselves. And then uh, there's a warning in 8 and 9, which we'll deal primarily with today. He has some encouragement in um, verse 10 and that great doxology at the end of uh, the epistle, as well as um, Peter's concluding thoughts. So that's the outline of the entire chapter, in case you're keeping track. Um, Sometimes Peter's hard to um, make sense of his order. Um, But like I said, those things do connect. So we'll try to uh, make some of those connections today. And we begin today with um, uh, verse 8 of 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you... See that? The one who has called you. Remember remember verse 1, chapter 1, they're elect exiles. They're called, they're the elect, they're God's people. And go back to verse 8. Because you're called, the devil prowls around wanting to devour you. And because you're called, you can be firm in your faith. And because you can be firm in your faith, you can resist him. So after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And not nice that the devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion is not the one who has dominion? Now, we're going to talk through these last three verses real quick right now. Um, there are additional comments and not necessarily related to the text. And so we're just going to talk through these quickly. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. At this point, he, he, uh, Peter grabs the pen, so to speak. Uh, at pr- maybe even literally, Peter grabs the pen. Um, I have written briefly to you through by Sylvanus, 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 however you want to say it. Um, so he's he is the secretary. He's the one he's the one doing the writing with the pen. Most likely, that's not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, in those days and in uh, the New Testament text. And so, by Sylvanus, I have written briefly to you. So he, he's, he did that to him, be dominion forever and ever. And then Peter grabs the pen and writes by Sylvanus, adds his last few parting thoughts himself. Sylvanus is Silas. Uh, most likely. That, that Sylvanus is the Roman fo- form of the Greek name Silas. Silas is the one who traveled with Paul, you know, on the second missionary journey. Acts 15, I think it is, tells us he's a prophet. Acts 16 tells us he's a Roman citizen. Um, and he apparently was the one who wrote down Peter's words. And, which is a good thing, because it's, the, the Greek suggests, the quality of the Greek suggests, and I'm not a Greek scholar, you have to ask uh, Dr. Jostino over there, um, but the quality of the Greek suggests this was not written by an uneducated fisherman. Um, but he's the one the Holy Spirit spoke to, to give us these words. Um, and he exhorted the, leader, the, 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 the readers here, stand firm in their faith. Uh, since your suffering is is a part of God showing his grace to you. One of, we know one of you, he, he said, I have written to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. We know Peter had the gift of exhortation that God's grace is sufficient. So this grace to you just might refer to the grace that God is giving them as they suffer the persecution that they're suffering. Then verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. She who is at Babylon. Most likely this is referring uh, to the church in Rome where he's writing from, where he spent the last years of his life. Some say where he says she, Babylon's referring to Rome, but she, Peter, might even be referring to his wife. We know from other texts, she's um, another part of the New Testament. She traveled with him. And so he might even be referring to his Wife here, and then why would he say Babylon instead of just the church at Rome? If he's not talking about his wife, he could be talking about the church. Why didn't he just say the church at Rome? Well, Rome was the center of world, the world's godlessness at the time. Babylon is known uh, as a center of godlessness as well. In olden times, Peter would say. Just like Hollywood is actually a town in California, but it's a symbol of something. What? What? Who? Yeah, maybe the same godlessness. Who, I don't know. But, um, it's the same idea. Babylon is a symbol of that. Then he says, Mark, my son. That's John Mark. Um, Peter was, uh, his spiritual mentor, his spiritual father. Peter was, he was Peter's protege. And um, even tradition even tells us that Peter helped him write the Gospel of Mark. This is the same John Mark who failed Paul. And then eventually they kissed and made up, you know, and and um, he was able to serve him later on in his ministry. And then verse 14, greet, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In that culture, a kiss is a common way to express affection publicly, and, and it still is in many cultures today. We talked about it uh, this past Wednesday night and first Wednesday in Psalm chapter 2. At the end of that, the psalmist, psalmist David says, Kiss the sun." In that case, it was a symbolic of act of honor to the Lord Jesus Christ in that Messianic psalm. Uh, But uh, Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love. In the midst of all that persecution, he prays for peace. God's surpassing, all surpassing peace that passes all understanding. And the common shalom that he provides for them. This little epistle that we end today opens and closes with a prayer of peace. What a wonderful way to end a letter that announced the coming of a fiery trial. Quite possibly this was Peter's handwritten conclusion. Um, But no less inspired. No less inspired. Go back to verse 8. As we begin our text, and we'll spend most of our time in verse 8 and 9 today. should be two two sermons. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Martin Lloyd Jones says, "We cannot read the scriptures intelligently unless we know something about demons." If we are, this is a sermon he preached that's um, uh, widely published. Uh, on demonology if we are unaware of these evil powers we will almost certainly be defeated by them ignorance is one of the greatest causes of stumbling and there are many people who are so ignorant of these forces that they become the, excuse me that they become their innocent and unconscious victims And so we see a connection here with the previous thought. What does he say in verse 7? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Anxiety will intoxicate the soul. Anxiety will make you drunk. And so he says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be self restrained. You know why drunk drivers get in wrecks? Because they can't concentrate. They can't focus their minds. Their minds aren't engaged on what they're doing. They're drunk. And in this case, people who are intoxicated with anxiety and haven't cast their cares on the Lord are going to be in deep trouble. So in case this freedom from care should lead you to any false security, he says, be watchful also. Your anxiety will make you drunk. But if God cares for you and you're just sitting back in your lazy chair, God's in control. And he says, well, you better be watchful. Because that's a problem too. Be vigilant. Be alert against your adversary. God provides, therefore don't be anxious. The devil seeks, therefore you better watch out. You want to say, whew, I can rest easy now. Get rid of that anxiety. God's taking care of everything. Putting away anxiety doesn't mean laziness and it doesn't mean inactivity. We continue to live in the world he's reminding us now. He's reminding his readers now. We continue to live in a world where Satan is seeking to devour. Satan is seeking to trip up believers. More than that, he's seeking just to swallow them up in one gulp. Seeking to devour them. Go back to Jonah in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And the word that is used there for the fish swallowing Jonah is the same word that's used here. Devour. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We looked at that in depth. The first word, sober-minded, that deals with it, what controls our disposition, what's inside of us. Be be sober-minded. The second word, be watchful, is what's on outside, what's on the outside of you. So we we've got to be on on guard with the the internal aspects of these attacks from Satan, but we ask to also be on guard with the external aspects of Satan's attacks. John Piper asked the question, does God's care for us make us careless or careful? Confidence in God's sovereign care does not mean that we can live carelessly. God is almighty. He cares for you. You can cast all your anxiety on him, but look out. The devil's prowling around. The outside evil forces that come against the Christian demands that we stay alert. We don't talk about this enough, do we? You think about out there in the wild, the roar of the lion... Would scatter a flock of sheep. Sheep just sitting there being stupid, sheep out there in the field, just eating their grass or whatever they do. They hear the roar of the lion, what are they going to do? They're going to scatter. And they are stupid. But we can connect this also to the first five verses of this chapter about elders, shepherds, and sheep. The body of Christ. When a lion is prowling around when when the sheep and the shepherd knows there's a lion around, they're not gonna sleep very well. And so they better stay up and be watchful. And then you think, Why did he use a roaring a lion? I've thought about this all week long. Why does he use a lion for Satan? What about Aslan? The great lion Aslan. From the lion and witch in the wardrobe. In the Chronicles, Narnia, he represents Jesus Christ. And so I pulled out my old hundred year old copy. Well, it's not a hundred, um, Lewis died in 63. 1963. I pulled it out because it relates. A little historic trivia for you as well. The reason you aren't aware of when C.S. Lewis died is because he died on the same day JFK was assassinated. Nobody noticed C.S. Lewis died that day. So Aslan is the Christ. The children come together, Lucy, um, Edmund, I think, those two, not all of them, come and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who described the mighty lion to them. Is is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. That's another king. That's another lion. And we do have that connection in Scripture as well. Jesus is a lion in Scripture too. Interesting, the two symbols, two that represent Jesus and Satan, are the lion and the serpent, the lion and the snake. Both are descriptive of them. The snake, Adam and Eve in the garden. In Revelation 12, Satan has the name the ancient serpent. But in the wilderness wanderings, you remember this story when the Israelites are being bitten by the venomous snakes. Moses creates this bronze serpent and he puts on a pole and and tells the people to look at it and live. And in John chapter three, we see that that's a representation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here, Satan is a roaring lion, but we see in Revelation five, Jesus is the Lion of the Tribe of Judah—strong, powerful, dangerous symbols. And then in the Gospel of John, you remember talking about Satan being the prince, being called the prince of the, this world. Controlling this world, we see in First John five nineteen. But he's a slanderer who turns the truth into a lie. He slanders God. He slanders man. He pits God and man against each other. And he undermines the believer's faith in God. And that's what we're seeing in this one called the adversary, the devil. The Greek there is a legal term. It's the, it's the opponent in a trial legal opponent in a lawsuit, the devil, the roaring lion. The word devil, diabolos, I think, is slanderer, a, 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 a terrible, malicious enemy who slanders others. That regular word for Satan literally means one who slanders false accusation is always a weapon that the devil uses. Deception is really his M.O. And he, he's, not, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. Satan can't be everywhere at all times as God is, but he has helpers. He has help. That's another C.S. Lewis book we won't go into. But he has helpers. He and his forces are always active. They're always looking for opportunities to overwhelm you, the believer. And he's going to overwhelm you with temptation. He's going to overwhelm you with persecution. He's going to overwhelm you with discouragement. He sows discord in the body. And he'll do what he can to drag the Christian out of fellowship with Christ. He'll do what he can to drag you out of your mission, out of your Christian service. he constantly accuses believers before God's throne. We know from Job 1, we know from Revelation 12, that he's always trying to convince God to abandon us sorry Christians. And Peter knows what he's talking about when he says these things. Peter speaks from experience because he remembers the words of Jesus when he betrayed Jesus. Luke chapter 22, 31 and 32. I don't think I've got it on the screen. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter remembers these words. He knows about that roaring lion. He's experienced it over and over and over. He says, respect him. He'd be, he'd be sober-minded about all of this. Well, if he respected Satan more earlier on, he might not have slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wouldn't have had to be warned by Jesus to watch and pray, so he wouldn't enter into temptation. He says, be watchful. If Peter was watchful, we should recognize Satan. We should Satan and what he's doing, discern what he's doing. If he'd been alert, if he'd been watchful, he might not have denied Jesus three times. He tells us to resist Satan. If he'd resisted, he might not have grabbed that knife and cut off that guy's ear. Warren Wearsby says Before we can stand before Satan, we must bow before God. Peter resisted the Lord and ended up submitting to Satan. Resist him, firm in your faith, he says in verse nine, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. God commands us to commands us all to forsake the world, deny the lust of the flesh. Do those things to resist Satan as he attacks. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You do that, and then you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul talks about the armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And his, Satan's desire is to cause you to doubt. Do you doubt? Is there doubt in your life? Do you struggle with doubt? That's Satan's work. He he wants you to deny. You get in situations where you end up denying who you are. Do you deny by your inactivity? Cause you cause you to to disobey as well. That's why he's gonna. He's going to devour. He's seeking to devour a believer. But can he? Could Satan devour a true believer? Could Satan destroy the faith of a true believer? No. He can't. Does that mean that you can rest easy? No. You can't. Satan cannot devour a true believer because a true believer will resist. Always. By remaining firm in the faith, resist him. Firm in your faith, he says in verse 9. Stand up against him. Not necessarily attack. Although the sword of the spirit is pretty offensive, but defend yourself against those attacks. The way to resist Satan is not just by some special formula or by saying some special words, and we always tack on the end of those special words in the name of Jesus, but by remaining firm in the Christian faith. That's how we resist. Continue to live in the truth of God's word. No sound doctrine. Obey God's truth. When you do that, Satan is resisted. We can't just say, well, God's sovereign. I can, I'm, just, I'm in his care, so I can sit back. If you say that, you need to check your position in Christ. Because the true believer will always resist. From Ephesians 6, when he plays with our minds, we've put on the... That's how you resist. When he plays with our minds, we've got the helmet of truth on for protection. When he attacks our heart, we've got the breastplate of righteousness on to defend against those attacks. The true believer will always resist. And when Satan goes, bam, I'm going to get you, you've got the armor on. Put on the whole armor. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Isn't that comforting? You're not the only one. You're not the only one suffering. The whole brotherhood, the entire Christian community... Always going through similar trials. Notice he said not the same suffering, but the same kind of suffering. Brought on by this roaring lion and never stops trying to devour, believe. He never gives up. He's relentless. He never gives up. One day he will. One day he's defeated. And I think it's easier for us to resist that, but brothers and sisters around the world are suffering as well. When you're going through your suffering. There's the Christian who suffers because of Christ rejoices when Christ's glory is revealed. That suffering's for a little while. We see that in verse 10 in just a moment. But we see that we, we, Peter makes this comparison: between suffering and glory, suffering and glory. Wherever he talks about suffering, he talks about glory. 1 Peter 4. Uh, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. So Gartner said, other Gartner says, thus the Christian awaits not the end of suffering, but the goal. Right? Oh, God, when will this be over? When will this suffering be over? When will this ever end? Can't we focus on the goal? To God be the glory through it all. The goal of the devil is to devour. It means get rid of the believer. Destroy the believer's faith. Get... The goal of the devil is to destroy Christianity. Period. One of the ways he's going to do this, and we've already seen this in recent times, is that he's going to get the church to just assimilate back into the world and start looking much more like the world. Which takes me back to an article I mentioned back first Wednesday, an article Pastor Greg sent me um, last week. I'm sure he planned to bring it up at some point, but I've brought it up twice now, and so he probably doesn't have a chance. The article talks about there's this exile, we, 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 relating to First Peter, the elect exiles, that, that we've, we've gone into exile as well through the sexual revolution uh, and, and secularization and humanism of the 60s and 70s and all. The, 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 the church is just put, put by the, the side. The, the world has become ambivalent toward, toward Christianity. And he said when what Christians did, what we did, is humorous in some of it as well, what the church did to address this thing is that we just decided to serve Starbucks coffee at church or wear skinny jeans so we'd look more like the world. That's how we addressed it when the world became ambivalent. And I might add that very, with very few exceptions during that same period of time, the rise of the megachurch that just watered down the gospel and, in order to simply to get more and more people in the door through entertainment and mass baptisms and no discipleship and hence the plethora of false conversions. So, and that's what Satan's trying to do. Trying to get us to assimilate back into back into the world. Now he says we're going to the second phase of of our exile, where in the next 20 or 30 years Christianity will be attacked. So Satan is not always sneaky. When he's got a chance, he's just going to attack. As time moves on, he'll be increasingly bold and seeking to crush Christianity. He's prowling around. He's subversive. I go to Barnes & Noble pretty regularly, you know, and you walk by that entire wall of magazines, and you almost you have to close your eyes. I mean, they use sex to sell guns and automobiles. Just over and over, he's got his ways. And you walk through that store and you, you just see the book titles, you see the covers of the books, and you just, just see how, how, how Satan is filling your, your, your images, your mind with attacks to take your mind off of. And I love smelling those books. They just smell so great. I love going there. And the coffee smells good too, but he's prowling around in in our music. The words stick in your head, by the way. They do. You ask some teenager to listen to some awful rap. Well, I don't listen to the words. Oh, but they're sticking there. You might not listen to the words, you're lying to me, but maybe you're not. The devil's prowling around. Or we could talk about the parents I've recently talked to who are having to have the sex talk with their third grader because of the disgusting things a girl in school is saying. The devil's prowling and before you adults say, yeah, we've got to protect our kids, listen, I could take you into the LifeWay store right now and show you books that reveal that the devil's prowling around, trying to turn your heart and turn your mind. And you'll pick up the shack or you'll go watch the movie. Maybe you should read it. Maybe you should go to the movie. I'm not saying don't go, but you better pray for discernment. That you won't be deceived because you can't discern. That you're not going to that or reading that because you think it's some good down-to-earth theology book. I could use a hundred other examples. That's just current. And my my wife this week preached to me on this as well. I can't get her up here to say all she said. We wouldn't have time. (laughs) But the gist of her thought. And i wrote it down whenever it was thursday or whenever because we aren't watchful he's done his damage before we even notice thinking about our present political situation in our nation people are divided families are divided christians and their relationships are severed before we realize who's causing the division Our denomination, I'm going to throw this in, our denomination has people disagreeing and fighting over the present political situation in our nation. And that's not a politician, it's not the president, it's Satan seeking to divide us, to devour us. And it happens, Judy said, and the damage is done because we aren't sober and watchful. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We sing about this roaring lion. Luther's great hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his tri- truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We're to trust God. We're to be on the alert. We're to be watching. We're to be very active. We're, we're living, we live in enemy territory. Um, it's probably better to put it this way we're in occupied territory because the world belongs to us. It belongs to the redeemed. There's a future, and there'll be a new heavens and new earth, and we'll live in it. But in the present situation, it's occupied by a foreign army, and Satan is the prince of this world, spiritually speaking. Resist. Be firm in your faith. Point one. Point number two. Encouragement. Verse 10 and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you suffered for a little while. Sometimes it doesn't seem like a little while, does it? Is it short? Is it long? It really depends on who you are. You remember back a couple chapters ago, Peter mentioned that these are the last days when he was writing this. And it's been over 2,000 years. So what does he mean? I don't know. After you suffered a little while, in terms of eternity, brothers and sisters, if you suffered an entire lifetime, It's nothing. Christians are to live with the understanding that God's purposes realized in the future. God's purposes for us in the days ahead require some pain in the present. While the believer is being personally attacked by the enemy, We're being personally prepared by the Father. As that phrase attests, God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials." He's called you. He's writing to ones who have been called. Has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's the effectual call. That's the elect exiles he's talking to. It's a saving call. It's not just an invitation for a person to accept or reject as he pleases. Woost in his commentary called it, this calling is a divine summons. It's a royal command which the recipient of that command must obey and cannot ignore. Restore, confirm, strengthen. Established. They all speak of strength and single mindedness. God is working through our struggles to produce something in our character. In fact, throughout, we see character traits throughout this chapter. Great richness. Peter closes with all these character traits and attitudes that show Christians. At the point of Christian maturity shows submission in verse 5. Look at them all the way down. Submission in verse 5 and humility in 5 and 6 and trust in verse 7 and sober-mindedness in verse 8 and defense, resistance in verses 8 and 9 and, and hope in verse 10 and worship in verse 11, faithfulness in verse 12 and affection in 13 and 14. You think we get that far? comforting assurance that God is finally through that suffering he is going to perfect that work of grace that he began in your life Bengal says only do you watch and resist the foe God will perform the rest the God of all grace completes the work that He began in you. He will not let His purpose fall short no matter what you're going through, no matter how much you're suffering. And we've got those three things that just join together here. We've got the call, your calling, the glory to which you're called, and the way is through Suffering. All because the God of all grace, the God of all grace. We have on our side one who's able to overcome the adversary, the devil. And God gives us sufficient grace to do that. But it's good for people to know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. That's a good thing. And after you've suffered for a little while, it's it's good to know there's an end to the conflict. If you're a true believer, you're looking forward to heaven. At least the conflict ends there. Like an idiot, I'm running the bridge run. And I'm actually preaching the next day, and so I may be sitting for that message. But you know, when I see, when I can see the end there, I kick it up a bit. No matter how much it hurts. Because in just a little while, there's a reward. In my case, it's a banana. But (laughs) there's a reward. So you kick it up a bit. So for the believer to know that brothers and sisters around the world are suffering too the same way but that suffering is for a little while and we can endure because of that we can move on we're facing a fiery trial but we can move on this it's short lived But we can move on. So stand firm, resist Satan. Submit to the mighty hand of God. Until Christ returns, or you go on, that battle is going to continue. That battle between good and evil will continue on. And suffering for faith in Christ will be the norm for the Christian. Just accept it. It's going to be the norm for the Christian. The believer shares in this common experience with all other Christians. And we're not alone in this. But let me warn you about something. The danger goes back to another connection we make in this, in this last chapter. The danger goes back to pride. That sin we talked about last week because you're going to always have the tendency to to think that your suffering is worse than the next guy's. And that's going to keep you from ministering to people. And that sin's going to keep you from your relationship with God. That's nothing but sin. When somebody's telling you their struggle and you think, oh... But wait till you hear my story. That's pride. And with this prayer, Peter encourages the believers. These believers experiencing excruciating, excruciating suffering for Christ and gives them the assurance God is standing next to them. And then he closes, to him be dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. God has enough power and ability dominion to help us endure whatever suffering He allows us to experience. And He concluded this with another benediction. We, 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 we saw one benediction already. Is that verse? Yeah. I'm verse 11 of chapter 4. halfway through that verse, in order that everything, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And he says, To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has dominion and will have dominion. The present enemies of sin within and the devil on the outside, that's all temporary. They are, as I said, occupying forces that will be defeated ultimately. Christ will come again. Christ will establish his kingdom. This kingdom will ultimately be transformed into what Scripture calls the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope. The suffering is just for a little while. One last thought. We believers are instructed to resist the devil. If you're listening to me and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have anything to resist with. You're firing blanks at best. But these are not war games. This is the real deal. This isn't paintball. These are real bullets he's firing, and he wants to destroy you. He didn't want you to hear what I have to say. He's fighting right now, in your head, just to throw you off. So you won't be able to pay attention, because you don't have the helmet of truth. This is serious business. We don't talk about it much. We don't talk about it enough. If you're here, you don't know Christ. Turn to Him. Run to Him. Embrace Him. Only then do you get the ammunition you need. And for you believers here today, The only way for you to continue to resist is to continue to grow, to continue to stay in the Word. You can't do battle without the Word of God. Get in it. Stay in it every day. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll close with a hymn. I encourage you, if you have questions, you need to respond to this message in any way. Pastor Greg and others will be in the back while we sing. Make your way back there and have them pray with you, serve you during these closing moments. Father, we thank you for your word for this time together. For your grace in our lives, for sustaining us even through the darkest times in our lives. For the opportunity, Lord, to resist because of your word. For the power to resist because of your Holy Spirit in our lives. For the eyes to see because your spirit has opened our eyes. Oh, God, we praise you for that. Continue to do your work in the life of every single person in this place. May those who don't know you come to faith in you, turn to you for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.